Good morning. Thanks for being here. Um, Anne-Marie and the kids got back into town at 1.30 this morning, so you get me for another week. Um, they're just gonna, they're just gonna try to catch up on some sleep. Um, so we've got an icebreaker this morning for you to discuss. Uh, God leads in different ways, and so far in your life journey, do you feel he is led mostly as planned, as in as you planned, or has he thrown kind of a wrench in your, in your path? Uh, what's the biggest surprise detour, uh, and what does your new path look like? Um, and so discuss that, and we'll get back together in a few minutes. All right, guys. Sorry to interrupt your discussions. Thank you again, everybody, for coming. Um, Ruth Van Rieken is our speaker this morning. Uh, she first attended Faith in 1986, and after some time away, has returned to call it her church home. She and her husband, David, have adult children and 13 grandchildren, and Ruth works with families who are raising children in cross-cultural settings, and she loves talking and listening to people whenever she has the chance. Uh, a few years ago, I grabbed a bunk bed off of eboard, and it was from the Van Rekens, and I can testify that she's a great conversationalist. <laughs> the whole time I was sitting there taking it apart, we had a great conversation. It was awesome. So um, let me pray for us, and then we can get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and uh, this chance for us to be together in fellowship and just discuss uh, your working in our lives, and um, Lord, that the truth that your plan is better than ours, and Lord, we trust you to, to guide us. Uh, thank you for Ruth and her willingness to share her story and uh, your story through her. We just pray that it'll be um, edifying to everybody here, and uh, Lord, that it'll just bring you glory. We pray these things in, uh, in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Some of you I know quite well. Some of you I've never met before, so I appreciate that you're here. Today, I want to talk about an unlikely journey, which is the way God put my life together in ways that I never expected. I'm so happy to see some younger people, because what I also hope is that, above all else, you will understand that God works in, I think I'm supposed to stand up here so you can see me better, um, that he works in ways that we don't expect, but he works really always according to his word. One of the things that's a basic principle that I would like to say to you is that God does unlikely things through unlikely people. And if you look all through scripture, you know, he used the son of a slave to lead people out of Israel. He used, he, you know, had Paul lead the church after he was persecuting it. God always chooses the most unlikely people to do whatever he wants to do. Because he said the treasure is in an earthen vessel. The treasure is not us. What he chooses to do through us is his business. But he shapes us according to that. And so we are his handiwork. For all of you who are younger, you don't know it yet, but the very things that are in your life, the people, the parents you have, the experiences you have, are all part of how God is shaping you as his handiwork to be prepared for what he's given you to do in the future. And that was the situation for me. Another principle is that most of the time I have no idea where I'm going. And that'll be so for you. You think you're going someplace, and then you get to a roadblock and you wonder what happened. But God knows. And Jesus said, he's the way. If you remember in John 14, when uh, Thomas is talking to him and Jesus says, I'm going to go make a way for you and I'm going to make a place. And Thomas says, well, how are we going to get there? And we don't even know. And Jesus said, I'm the way. And he said, well, I don't know what that means. And he said, you don't need to know where we're going. You just need to know who I am and to stay with me. And I will take you there because, you know, he knows where we're going. So another verse that really has helped me throughout my life is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your understanding because your understanding is not going to be enough. But he says he's going to direct your paths. So when I'm trying to figure out my life, as you will be hearing, and I get all confused because I could go this way and it would be good, or I could go this way and be bad. I could go this way, it could be good or bad, and I just don't know. And he said he will direct us, so he does. And then the other thing 
is he will test my presuppositions, or he has tested my presuppositions of how I thought life was supposed to go, what ministry meant, and all those kind of things. But there's one wonderful thing. Jesus also said he's the shepherd and that he speaks, and we hear his voice, and we hear it in different ways. Two weeks ago, Jenna was here and saying basically she was wondering do other people hear his voice, and there's sometimes he works through scripture, sometimes through all kinds of things. For me, because either I'm very slow or because he was taking me in places I didn't know, uh, there are many times you'll hear me say, and God said, and what I mean by that is not that I'm crazy hearing voices here, but, you know, there's something in your heart or something you see. So that's kind of uh, how my story goes. And the other basic thing that has kept me going when I don't know where I'm going and I just try and follow Jesus. I met Jill Briscoe in 1980. We were in Liberia, which you'll hear about in a minute. And I felt like I was supposed to write, and I had some Bible studies, and she had done Bible studies and writing, and I said to her, you know, how would you do it, and what do I need to know, and all that. She said, Ruth, when you, know, when you don't know how to do everything, ask God what's the one thing you can do. She said, right now you write prayer letters. Write them for the glory of God. Right now you have eight people in your Bible study. Prepare as if they're 800. You don't know what's gonna, what God's going to do, but she said you'll be surprised when you do one step at a time where God takes you. So that's kind of the underpinning of my story, okay? This is a God story. It's not really a Ruth story. It was a surprise to me because how did he shape me? I began my life with my father who had been born and raised in Iran. He was a missionary child. My grandfather had started a hospital in Rasht. And I should say my niece is here, Mara, who, so she's in the family line as well. So she's going to hear her family story. My mother was Betty Frame, and my father was Charles, and they were friends of uh, Phil and Margaret Johnson's parents at Wheaton. And my mother, in fact, was uh, Phil Johnson's mother's roommate. So my parents met. Uh, they kind of met at Wheaton, but really they got kind of interested in each other on the way home from the Johnston parents' wedding. Can you believe that? And so they became home missionaries in Minnesota. In 1944, they decided to go to Africa, and in those days, you couldn't take children because uh, the ships were being bombed. So my mother being my mother, uh, she thought, well, she'd beat the system, and she'd go there first while she was pregnant. Now, most people wouldn't be that brave, but she got as far as Portugal, and they said, well, you better wait because people were getting stranded all over the place. So they waited a few months, and my sister was born in Portugal. Then they went down to Nigeria, and this is my childhood. I was born there, and four other siblings were as well. So my childhood was a bit different than probably some of yours, but maybe some of you have this. In 1948, we went to the States for the first time. And when you see all these little MKs coming here on furlough, well, we were the MKs on furlough. You know, it's kind of special, and they make you be, you feel really cool. And so I met my grandmother, and my grandfather had died by then, and my other grandparents were already buried in, in Persia or Iran. So in those days, people went to boarding school. So when I was six, I got on a little airplane, and I went off to boarding school. And the second year, we went in a little bigger plane. So my first and second grade were away from my parents, which at the time was normal. I didn't think they had abandoned me. I didn't realize until much later, which I'll tell you about, you know, how impactful it was for me. But at the time, it was what everybody did. Then I came back to the States, and for those of you kids, you know, one of the things that was the most fun about my life was we got to go on ships. And uh, we took three big ship rides that weren't cruises, they were actually to get you across the ocean. And so we had like four or five days, and we had all this food that we never had before. My mother tried to teach us how to use all the silverware that was on the, you know, because she wanted us to be civilized. And uh, we tried. So then we went back to Nigeria. And again, I had a new experience. And this is all part of my story because uh, God gave me all these experiences to understand. We were, when we were on furlough, my parents turned around and my mother said, would you like to be homeschooled? Instead of going to boarding school, we'd like you to stay with us. Well, that was a good idea to me. So I had four years with my parents that most missionary kids that I grew up with didn't have. 
It was also important because those were the years I began to be more aware of what I might want to do. We had an eye hospital at Kano where I grew up. They let me come watch surgery. Uh, we had uh, a language school for the new missionaries, and they'd go out in the villages on Sunday and pass out medicine and do all that, so I'd go with them. I'd go to the dispensary, and there was one thing I wanted to do. I was going to do medical missions. When I said I was going to be a, a nurse, my friend said, I mean, another missionary said, well, why don't you be a doctor? I thought, oh, I could be. My father, my grandfather married a missionary woman doctor after my grandmother died. And in my life growing up, it never occurred to me I couldn't do something because I was a woman. Because the ladies who were out there were out there in their motorbikes, starting churches. I mean, they just did stuff, you know. And so in those days, I remember that. But there was a time I was in church, and they were singing a song called Jesus on my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. But one of the lines was, perish every fond ambition, all I've hoped and thought and dreamed. I thought, aren't I going to get to be a doctor? I thought, oh, well, I'm sure I will. So that was fine. We went back to the States, went through reentry, which is never fun. But a year later, my parents went back to Nigeria and left me with my grandmother and my aunt because we didn't have high school in the States. So I never saw my parents from 14 to 18. But in God's mercy, I had a home with my grandmother and my aunt. I got to stay in my church youth group because I was supposed to go to boarding school, but in God's mercy, that didn't work out. And we became the family on the wall. And so that was how life was for those years. Those years were also very important for me because although I put the curtain down to my Africa self because I thought, well, she doesn't fit anywhere here uh, because she actually didn't. Um, if you have grown up where it's 110 in the shade, you really don't know how to ice skate because there wasn't a whole lot of ice, you know. And little details like that in my life. So, but we had a wonderful Bible club as well and a great youth group. So I'm all for great youth groups. And that was the first time in my life when I was praying, I had a feeling of talking to God as a person, not just, you know, abstractly. So life continued, and um, oh, in, in high school, I took chemistry, and I realized that I, I really had a, a not a good teacher. It's not, I'm not just saying that, but I have to understand why I do something, and he never explained why. He would just say, do it. So I decided I couldn't be a doctor because I couldn't do chemistry, but maybe I could be a nurse. So I uh, went to nursing school, and I was sitting on my bed one day, and I got my life first. And it was the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He reminded me to brighten up the brokenhearted. I mean, it was such a nursery verse, you know, because it was all this about comforting and, and uh, bestowing beauty instead of ashes. And, you know, I mean, I'm in the middle of people and struggles and all this. And so I know that my call is for sure. And that was fine. Then I met David during those years. He was a orderly uh, in the hospital in his summer. And so we met. And we married just before he started medical school. But when we were dating, and I said, so what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, I'm going to be a missionary doctor to Africa, I mean to Nigeria. He had the right country. And there weren't many of them out there. So I thought, well, we better hang on. Because, you know, most people wanted to go into business or something. But his parents had been missionaries in China when he was young. So God was preparing all these things. So when David was a senior, we tried to go to Nigeria for an elective. We had everything we needed. We got the scholarship, found that I was pregnant, but that was okay because my mother's going to be there, no problem. We couldn't get a visa. I thought, excuse me, you've called us. We know where we're going. This is not a problem for you. And so there was a day I finally, you know, was confused because I'm born in Nigeria. You know, you should notice on my passport, hello, Kano, Nigeria would be the place. And they weren't giving me a visa because they were mad at Americans for something about the Biafran War or something. So God and I were having a discussion about hello, and, you know, I've lived all the miracle stories. And it was like he said, did you want to go to Nigeria or did you want to follow me? I thought, well, it's the same thing. You know, I mean, obviously. So 
we wound up in Liberia and had our child there and went to Nigeria just at Christmas to see my parents. But that changed our lives. Then we came back to St. Louis. And for the first time in my life, I really hit depression. I know now that I touched my Africa self. And David was on call every other night. I didn't have any friends. It kind of felt like COVID quarantine is what I felt when COVID quarantine came. I thought, oh, I remember this feeling. And so those were not easy years. And I thought, well, if, we, if I'm so depressed, you can't be a missionary. Maybe we'll just support them. Um, but anyway, in God's mercy, uh, we were in the Navy then because that was in the draft days. And I've got a long life, guys. I'm sorry, can you keep up with it? They'll never catch up, but I'm here. So we went to the Navy, and we were in a wonderful church that really, you know, encouraged us, and finally, okay, we can go. And we wound up in 1976 back in Liberia with our three daughters. That is the, the ocean in the background. We lived on the beach, and it was too bad. But uh, suffering for Jesus, you know. So life was there. Now, our first term was not so easy. We had six people die, and we got robbed nine, ten times and stuff. But we got past that. But when we got there, there was another shaping. Remember I told you I'm a what? I'm a nurse. We're going to do medical missions. They told me they didn't need me. I thought, what? You don't need a missionary nurse? Hello? They always need missionary nurses. They had Liberianized. They had nationalized all the nursing. And they didn't want foreigners taking those jobs back. Well, that's a good idea in theory. But I just prepared my whole life to come. What happened? There are times you wonder if God actually went to sleep, you know, because it seems like it's so foreign. But instead, um, I wound up doing Bible study with international women. It started first, I did it with some uh, missionaries, because I felt like, well, some of us need help, and maybe they'll, you know, talk to me or something. But when we started that, this woman in the front right, uh, Marilyn, was from Canada. She was married to Joseph on the left, and he was a Liberian, and she brought her kids to our school. So she came, and she came to the Bible study, and then she said, Ruth, would you start a study for the international women? I have so many friends that are in cross-cultural marriages, and we all met our husbands when they were overseas, you know, somewhere. And we thought they were kind of, you know, like us in a way. But when they've come back to Africa and they've met the real cross-cultural aspect of their marriage, they were difficult. But many of them had husbands who were ambassadors and foreign service and all kinds of people. So they couldn't really share openly because it would reflect on them. So we started that woman in the back is Jane, and she was from England, and she was married to the Cameroonian ambassador. So we started, I had no idea I was learning a topic. I had no idea I was learning not to be afraid of ambassadors' wives and fancy people, because when I was an MK, they were kind of the rich people out here. We were the poor cousins. But you know what? If you're in Bible study, they're just people. And so that began, and it was wonderful. We had, one day we had, I remember we had 17 people, we had 14 nationalities, I just loved it. And the fruit was happening, and things were going, and I finally thought, okay, there's joy in serving Jesus, I got it now. Then I'm sitting on the bed one day, and it was like God said, you know, you're not gonna be here forever. I thought, well, what do you mean? Missionaries die when they go. You go the rest of your life, you don't just quit. And I thought, well, if that was you, you're going to have to speak a little louder. Now, we'd been through a coup and all that. I didn't know all kinds of things. But anyway, as it turned out, they said that our kids needed teeth. But the bottom line was David had been seconded to the government. And all of a sudden, they closed the government hospital. They closed the medical school he was teaching. And you're like, excuse me. I mean, <laughs> we're just trying to get going again. And so that wound up believing God was saying, you're supposed to go home at least for a while. And, you know, in my background, if missionaries quit, I mean, that's like failure. You know, that's the ultimate failure. So that was a process for me. But because of that, uh, 
we decided we would go home for a while, and David's mother said to Sherry, she was going to start high school, why don't you come? You could start high school here, and then you won't have to change in a year. And so that was all mentally fine, but it reactivated something in me. And so suddenly, I was that old depression and that old anger. And I finally, somebody came to a um, Bible study, and they were talking about inner healing. And I said, would you pray for me? Because I don't even know what my problem is. I have a perfect life, and yet I'm struggling with this. And so they prayed for me, and a couple of weeks later, I thought, well, this must have to do, Sherry's leaving, this must have to do somehow with my leaving. So I began to journal, and suddenly I was back in my first grade self and feeling all this way I felt my first night. But the adult me could put some language on it. So we went through that process. And then in the middle of that, um, are you with me or are you bored? You okay? <laughs> I'm getting so long. Um, in the middle of that, I got a request to fill out a form for my own children and their education, there was going to be this international conference on missionary kids, the first one ever in Manila. And so I filled it out, and I sent it back to Dave Pollock, who was doing the conference. I didn't know him. And I said, what are you doing for the adult missionary kid? <laughs> I'm 39. I've been trying to figure out my life. You're doing all this stuff, and you're still not doing anything for us. So maybe I'm just the only one, but I'll send you what I'm writing, because I was really not writing for anybody else, but I got mad. So I sent it to him, and the long story short was I wound up at that conference. And it was the first time sort of realizing that my MK self was still connected. It wasn't just back there. And a speaker there said, MKs are the prototype citizen for the future. And I thought, well, that's kind of arrogant. But what he was saying was what's happening with MKs and the cross-cultural mobility is going to become normal. And I didn't understand that yet, but it was true. And I began to hear other people tell their stories, and I realized that what I was experiencing was more than just me. And so I went back, and then we came to the States. Dave was missionary scholar in residence for a year, and then we moved to Indianapolis. And my children said, Mom, we're not from Africa now. <laughs> we're from Chicago. Well, if you tell people you're from Chicago, it's not very special. If you're from Africa, people kind of remember you. And so I still didn't know what I was going to do. And I, you know, kept asking God, you know, here I am. I'm 41. I don't know what I'm doing. I thought we well, you had your will out. And um, so they asked me to do a Bible study here at Faith, and I was all excited. And so I did it, and I thought it went well. And I thought they'd ask me again. But they didn't, because they said, We're, we have a lot of people who like to do Bible studies, so we kind of share it. I thought, oh, that's nice. <laughs> but what am I supposed to do? So I went and prayed. And God said, are you willing to be anonymous in Indianapolis? I thought, no. I thought, wait, what is that about? And I didn't know how much of my identity was being in the missionary kid and being in the missionary, right? You're kind of special. I mean, I always told people it didn't matter what you did as long as God asked you to do it. But I always had gotten to be the special one. May I say that kindly? It's nice that you're good to your missionaries. It is really nice. But we have wonderful churches, so we were sort of always there. And what happened if I was just a suburban housewife? Would that be okay? And that was not easy. So I'm being a suburban housewife here, but on the other part of my life, God was organizing the second missionary conference. And um, so the journaling, nobody would publish it, but a friend of mine who was a printer said he would print it. And so that happened then. But this was another part about learning how it is to be normal. I asked prayer because I was going to go there and speak. And I found out later somebody said she didn't want actually prayer. She just wanted to brag on what she was doing. And I say this kindly because it was part of the story. I realized if you're a missionary, you can ask for prayer. But all of you are doing stuff every day and probably need prayer. But you don't have that same permission. So that was part of learning it. But when I was in Ecuador, this was a life-changing experience for me. I met Norma McCaig, who was the only business kid who came. 
And she said, I think this is more than just MK stuff. And I think this affects business kids and foreign service kids and all this other group. And we spent the night talking. And so that was a wonderful experience. And she became part of my developing of the topic. But I was also sitting in a chair one day or at a table talking to somebody. And this man came up and he said, can I join you? I thought, well, that's kind of rude. I mean, we're in this intense conversation. He said afterwards, Scott had, he was trying to go to bed, and God said he wanted him to go speak to people. But anyway, he said something to the guy, and then he said, do you want me to tell you what I see about you? And I was a little bit nervous because I didn't know him, and what's he going to say, something spooky. But he said, when I look at you, I see an old oak bucket that's kind of chipped, and it's been taken out to the fields, and it's been pouring water. <clears throat> but it's hard to carry, and it comes back. It's only half full, and when it comes back to the, to the pump, it changes into a flask that's much easier to carry, and it never goes back to the field. It goes to carry water to the people that are going to the field on the tractors. I thought, oh my. I don't live my life by things like that, but I felt God saying, you're not going back. And that was, you know, a moment of like, okay. So that happened, but at the end of the conference, when I was sitting We'd had our first adult MK meeting, and somebody was reporting on it, and I was sitting in the audience. However, God says, he said, Ruth, I want you to go look for the MKs that got lost. A lot of them got lost, and they're not going to be in a church conference. They're not going to be in a conference like this. They're not even going to be in church, but they're out there. And I saw the picture of the shepherd, that's why I like my shepherd, with me as this little girl looking one bush at a time, and all these people that were caught in the thickets. And he said, you know, I said, well, how am I going to find them? And he said, well, they're not in missions, but they're in the international world. And they're out there. They're using their MK, that part of them. So I said, but, you know, I'm kind of used to doing Bible studies and retreats. How does this work? Because I don't know that world. He said, I'm the truth. If you speak truth, I'm going to work. You don't have to put it in religious language, but I will work. And so that began a journey, and it's why then when later we did some writing, we did it for secular, and then God opened other doors from that. But that was, you know, thinking, okay, he's led me. But then at that place, when the book went out, I thought, okay, now we're going again. And instead of my vision of what would happen, um, it turned out missions were sort of mad because I said I cried. And people were scared, I think, because boarding school was kind of what we all did. And someone said, you know, if I share your book with them, they won't send their kids to boarding school and then missions will cease to exist. I thought, well, probably not. But um, that's a lot of power. <laughs> but anyway, so then I had this picture one morning of a train wreck and all these people were caught inside and the train had to be, the windows had to be open from the outside. And everybody's getting ambulances and blankets and nobody's opening the windows. And I'm looking around and God just said, just go open the windows, that's your job. Open the windows, let the people get out. Other people can take care of them long term. So I thought, well, maybe that was what the book was. But in time, it's been okay. Then we went to Kenya when we were secular. So now I've had a mission experience. I've had a military experience, I've had a you know, secular experience with a program that Charlie Kelly helped start. And after that, I went to Australia, and this lady, I was doing something there, and she said, um, this is right when missions were just starting not to be so mad, and she said, when I saw you talking today, I had this picture that there was a stage, there were no stairs on it, and if God didn't put you on it, you couldn't be there. And I thought, well, I don't know what that means, but those are the things that you know he puts in your heart. So then somebody published the book. We started Families in Global Transition right here in Indianapolis because it seemed like there were a lot of people here that you know had come from other places, and that's become a worldwide conference, which is for other people's gifting. I the second year I said I have a baby if anybody wants to adopt her because I'm no good at administration, and the first edition of Third Culture Kids came out. What had happened was Dave Pollack, who did the conferences, had been doing a profile. 
And I told him, I said, you need to write your book. And he said, I don't have time. So I said, I'll help you. So these things are happening. Finally, life is moving. And then guess what? I got my mammogram. They called me. They said, you need to come back. And then I got the call nobody wants. It's positive for cancer. I thought, man, <laughs> here we go again. So in processing that, you know, I saw this picture of this line that was finally moving because I thought, what is my grief? They think I'm going to live. And I was going to have to get out of line again. Do you see a theme? God keeps saying to me, you're not what you do. You're who you are. It's different than what you do. What if I never got back in line again? What if I spent the rest of my life being ball, blowing bubbles with my grandkids? Was I still me? And you know, that's important because it means you can also fail. Because even if you fail, you're still you. And God is at work. And so that seed had to die for a while because I had a lot of complications for two years. But in the meantime, Dave Pollock, who was the man I'd written the book with, I found out he was sick. And I found out on, uh, he'd gone to Vienna and he wound up with pancreatitis. And then he had a cardiac arrest. And on uh, February, I mean, Good Friday, we were sitting in our, uh, I was in a Good Friday service and I just found out they were going to pull the tubes. And I thought, God, how can that be? He's the other half of my mind. We had worked so hard together. And what happens? And I saw, well, then the verse came, except the seed fall on the ground and die, it abides alone. And I thought, but how does this work? It's all going to end with him. And then I realized he'd been at the top of the line, and now the line just smushed. And God said, you know, you just have to go water the seeds now. And they're planted all over and just water them. So from the last few years, um, I started here being a missionary kid, right? And then found out I was a third culture kid, which means somebody who's from one country grows up in another place, but isn't like the first country or the second. My life growing up was not like living in America, but it wasn't like my Nigerian friends either. But it was the way of life we did. And there's all these other people that are part of that. And so God was giving me this opportunity to go out and work in that larger arena. Then as I did that, I found out all these people were saying, I didn't do the story your way, but I'm relating. I don't, I'm lost between cultural worlds. I don't know if I'm this, I don't know if I'm that. And so many were even more complicated. When I put this up first, I was at Lily, actually, and a lady came up to me, and she said, can you be in more than one circle? She said, we're from India, and we have two different language groups my husband and I are from, so they're cross-cultural. Then we lived in different cultural places in India, and so they're domestic TCKs. They've grown up in different cultures within their own country, which many kids do. Then we immigrated to the States, so now they're children of immigrants, so we got three circles. And then we became minorities, and so now we've got that circle. And then my husband got a job with Lily, and we went overseas, so now they're traditional, and I thought, good grief. <laughs> I think my brain just flew. And every place we go, they're educational, because our home culture is not the same as the school culture. So she was in six circles, or her kids were. I thought, oh my goodness, this is getting too much. And that's the story of the world. That's the story of the world. And God gave us ahead of time, because many of the people that were in this topic at the beginning were from missions, although Ruth Yusim, who began it, was from Michigan State. And this opportunity to think about and understand, and then you realize even the kids who came to my father's school were cross-cultural in the sense that they had left their villages and they had to come. He's given us a topic that takes us into people's hearts and lives that I never, ever knew. So I want you to know that you don't know it, but Sally Rushmore is part of this. She helped me in the last thing, but she has been doing a lot of editing for my friends who are writing in this topic. And so she's a secret agent here too. And um, so the thing, oh, those are some of the books that she's edited that are out there. So all of a sudden, going from not knowing what I was doing, I still don't know what I'm doing, but every day, every week, is something eclectic. Sometimes it's, you know, 
tomorrow morning I'll be doing something with World Food Bank at 7 on a Zoom, and then TCKs of Asia at 8, and something else at 9. It's just whatever happens. But it's a step at a time. It is so fabulously interesting. What I want to say to all you young people, when I was young, I thought God would ask me to do something totally opposite to who I was. He just wanted to test me, make sure I was faithful. Instead, he's made you right. And so when, um, and I kept thinking what happened to the MKs, but now there's a lot of situations coming up with MKs and abuse in boarding schools and things like that. And so there's a full circle back to that now that um, there's two different conferences coming up that um, are different schools working with restorative justice. How do we sort this out for so many that were, that were seriously wounded? I don't know. I was in Afghanistan a few years ago, and I was at some mission compound or mission guest house. And mission guest house aren't like um, Conrad Hilton, you know. You kind of make your own beds, and you wash your dishes with everybody else and everything. But it's a world I know, because it's a world from the past. And I was sitting there, and I thought, this is the most amazing trip, because We've been taking little airplanes to these different little places, you know, Bazaar and Herat and wherever, just like I used to take when I went to boarding school. I know those planes. I know how you get to way before you get on them. It's really cool. I know how scary they are when they start to bump in the wind because you're thinking, I don't think this plane feels very strong. I knew I was doing some stuff for... Uh, I did a retreat for the Christian workers there, so I had my, you know, Bible study self there. I'd never been closer to Iran in my life, and I thought, just over the border are my grandparents. I'm never going to see them. The city looked like the one I grew up in because it was a Muslim city, and all the, all the walls that are there and the red brick and then the people behind them, anyway, it, it just was so familiar. And I thought... I think my friends in Indianapolis would think this was kind of a strange trip. But my life just came together. All the pieces of it. Oh, I did some secular stuff, too. I was at the international school there. And I thought, I was born to do this. God prepared me by my life. I have no other preparation except God. Even the mind he gave me that didn't understand chemistry. When we sent in the book the first time, I was just going to write Dave Prowlick's TCK profile, and the editor wrote back, he said, but you have to explain it. I thought, well, I don't know why. It just happened. But because I have a why mind, it made it interesting to think about. You were born to do whatever God gives you to do, too. Your story is part of his calling. And I guess that's what... I want to say that the, the glory is his because over and over I know I'm out of my league. And there was one day I was in Singapore and there were 800 international baccalaureate educators in front of me and I explained to God again, I don't know anything about education. And he said, well, that's not what I asked you to talk about. <laughs> I want you to talk about the kids. And uh, so one step at a time he leads. And because he said I'm his workmanship, and he's prepared me, I can trust that he's going to work because he's God. So thank you. And any questions? <laughs> or else you can go back to the questions on your table. Any questions at all? Yeah. Yes. It turned into Zoom. But next week I'm going to Idaho to some MK school retreat. And one of the most exciting things to me in the Zoom days, because when Zoom started, I really felt depressed. I thought my life just came to an end again, you know, because I lost, I had five trips that I was supposed to go and whatever. Um, but it has expanded because you don't have to travel and people can invite you. But in the last year, I heard from somebody from the World Food Program. And it's the first time they've invited somebody to do stuff for family. 
And she was insistent that it wouldn't be just for the expatriates, the foreigners who were working for them, but that the people in the countries who are the people who take the food and go out to where it's dangerous, that they would have to be included as well. Because she said, they're also doing family transition, they're doing all this. And so she has 20,000 people. And when we, so she asked me to do something and I did two things and then all my friends from FIGT have been doing stuff all year and so forth. They have five and 600 people coming from all over the world. Some of the morning things are at four in the morning to try and get all the other things. And I thought, how? There's one man called in when they did something on language, and he said, well, I was from a village in Africa. And I thought, I know you. <laughs> I really don't, but I did. And he said, when I went two, two miles away, I had to learn a different language for each time I changed schools. And I thought, wow, there's a whole world beyond even the world that I see, even this expat world. This topic matters because people are caught in the sense of who am I and how do I fit, and it's a world that's in turmoil because identity is such a huge issue, and that's why everybody's trying so hard to keep their identity by pushing others away. And the gospel, the gospel says there's no more Jew, nor Greek, Gentile, nor free. It's so for us. Every single person, the thing that gives me courage Every single person, I don't care what culture they're from, I don't care what language they're from, is a person made in the image of God. They're relational beings. They're emotional beings. So if they have separation, they will feel it, right? I don't care where you're from. So you can speak about these things, and people understand. And then on Tuesday morning, I'm doing a Bible study. We have one person that's in Korea, one person's in uh, Kyrgyzstan, one person's in Japan, one person's in England, and I'm here. And I think, how is this happening? It's God. He's even let me do my Bible study stuff again. So that's been fun. Yeah. It has become a super huge topic. Put TCK in your uh, thing, but also, I'm on the board for SPAN, which is Safe Passage Across Network, which is trying to get transition in all international schools, and really they should get them in every public school here because the topic is now in Indianapolis and all of your language learning and stuff. So it has become a huge topic now where people didn't believe it 30 years ago. Um, I think all those seeds that they've sowed and have been watered so there are things for secular, there are things for um, missions, but Families in Global Transition is another big resource every year we meet, and it's cross-sector, it's cross-professionalism, and people come and we keep developing the topic and they have a family research network, I mean a, uh, a research network on there and another affiliate for coaches and, and counselors. So. It's just amazing to me. Um, and again, it's back to just open the doors. All these other people who have much more gifts than I have uh, have developed a lot of things now to put structure in how we do this. I just keep saying we have a problem. And they say, well, then what do we do? I, think, I don't know. You go ahead. So it's been, uh, it's been amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Jesus said he's the wonderful counselor, and I'm not saying that lightly. Um, at this time when I thought maybe I should get some help, and my dear husband said, you know, I mean, that wasn't how you did it then, that it would be a sign of real weakness. But you see, nobody understood the story. I've talked to a lot of people that went to counselors who didn't understand this hidden part. And so they diagnosed it as... Um, all kinds of things, and one of my friends, Lois Bouchon, has written a book for counselors called Belonging Everywhere and Nowhere, and how do you know the difference between what's a normal response, because you see, what I didn't understand was that I had grief, and that's the piece I think I brought, that what I call unresolved grief. We have two big issues. We have identity, 
but many of us have unresolved grief because we didn't understand the story. We didn't know how to say goodbye. We didn't know, we didn't have funerals when we left. And because I did my journaling in Nigeria, we didn't have therapists, but I really, no, I am not, I mean, God uses therapists all over the place, but it, for me, it was prayer and going back, and when I would touch that little girl in, in the boarding school bed, Jesus, will you come to her? Some people said to me, well, you're being new age, you're going back, and you know, you're not supposed to do that, and think going ahead and all that stuff. So I asked Jesus, I said, well, I thought you're the one who led me here. Is this okay? And he said, I'm eternal. I'm in all time, all the time. So nothing is ever past what I can heal. And when it happened, I let you keep going because you're a little girl. You don't know how to survive it. But now you're a grown woman. We can go back together, and we can touch that part of your life and whatever part it was in. I never knew till I was journaling that when I left Nigeria, my world died because it was the only world I had. I took an airplane ride, and every friend, every tree, every market, every smell was gone. But it wasn't my world. I was supposed to be in America, right? So you just push it off. And so I had to go back. And I, I told God, I said, I'm not going to stop my tears until they stop. Because I'm good at stopping my tears. I've done it all my life. And so I just cried it out. I never realized until I journaled that when my parents left, it was the death of my family. Because we were never two parents and four kids again. So I cried then as if um, i just gotten a phone call that they'd all been killed, killed in a car accident. So that was how God took me through the process, because he is the wonderful counselor, but doesn't mean that's the way he does it for everybody. But nobody knew then, and so I think my book was one of the first that put language, I mean, the third culture kid was out there, but that there was grief, and that was why it was so difficult for some admissions, because I think they saw it as a faithlessness, that I was anti-mission, I was anti-God, I was, you know, trying to tear, I was trying to make other MKs feel sorry for themselves. And I thought I had just discovered you could have pain and faith together. So we had a little problem communicating. Um, but that was how it was for me. And it's, you know, COVID hit it all over again because COVID put us all in transition without the goodbyes. We, we never said goodbye. We went from being involved to being in the middle stage, and, you know, I felt it all over again. So I don't know about you guys. Yeah. No, I, I just I talk about third culture kids. I just say, okay, this is the history. Uh, I mean, I might say that I grew up overseas, whatever. But then I say third culture kid, the original thing was when Ruth Yusim went to India, and she and her husband were studying, they wanted to study how business did business cross-culturally in the 50s right after the war. And they became interested in, well, they came from one place, went to another, and they formed this kind of interstitial world where the people were doing business. But what she became interested in was the children of all these people she was studying because they weren't like the people back in her study in, in things. In some ways, they were uneven maturity. They, were, they knew all about the world. They didn't know about their own culture. Um, and so she began to study that, and then Dave Pollock picked it up. He went as a missionary to Kajabi, and he was a house father at RVA. And he also realized that the kids were different than his youth group at home. And so he started to develop that and develop the profile. And so then, then I go on to, you know, it, if it's a culture, you have to have, you have cross-cultural mobility, or you have high mobility and cross-cultural. But it was the expected repatriation that made it different because you didn't just get into your culture. You, you kind of lived expecting to go back. And in those days, most of us had a system identity. I was a missionary kid. They were military. And then I go on to how it's changing with cross-cultural and, and what are some of the issues. And, and then, you know, what do we do and how does this impact identity? And we have circles and things we share around that, you know. We usually get our identity from community and... Uh, family and place, but when those keep shifting, you have to keep relearning. And that's, it's not that we were crazy, it's just that our experience was different. And then what do parents do about it? What do teachers do? It depends what my group is after that, what I say. But that's my elevator pitch.
Right. Well, I think the, the place that I would differ from how diversity is done is my feeling is if we start with likeness, the likeness of what it means to be made in the image of God, even if I don't tell them that's why, I just say if we start with likeness, then we can move to uniqueness. If we start with difference, we have to stay different to keep our identity. But when we can start with likeness, then we can have conversation. And then we can go to uniqueness because nobody wants to be like everybody else. But I use likeness because I think that's a biblical word. It's not sameness, but it's likeness. We're made in the image of God. And if we start there, then we have a lot of space to enjoy each other. And whatever culture you're from and whatever gifting and whatever, you know. So that's my pitch also somewhere along the way. I know, Johnny. Yep. <laughs> Rootlessness and restlessness are part of our our profile. I think um, I hear you. Uh, it feels like God gave me the best of all worlds here because I've gotten to stay and be a little more local. This is the 16th place I'd lived in 19 years when we moved here. But he's given me still this part that satisfies this international part of me. So that's been kind of a gift. Um, I think um, uh, I had one MK say to me once, she said, I realized I, ha I could give myself permission to stay. And I think sometimes that I, I know somebody else like that too. At first it just felt like I have to go. But he began to value finally some of the goodness, and I think I have too after 30 some years here, of being rooted and also, so I mean if God leads you, the good point is you're willing to go. But the sometimes we go just to go and also to escape because our whole life we took care of things by just leaving. You didn't have to sort out things. You could just leave. And so sometimes that's part of the issue too is God would like us to stay and learn in that moment. Um, but I hear you and uh, it's a common issue we face. And I think the other thing though is for some of us Identity is often you have to choose it between here and there. And I think for some who've grown up among many worlds, we can be all of the above. And that that's okay too. We have to re start reframing how we're talking about identity and, you know, that I can have my Africa self and my American self and different things. And I can be at home in many places. That took me a while, you know. So, um, keep praying, keep growing, keep asking him where he's taking you. and you may give yourself permission to stay, even though it's hard. Because it is, I think, a lot of us, when we got to Nigeria or Liberia, and I realized I didn't know where my end point was, it was scary because I'd always known before where I was going to move. And so you didn't have to invest. And that's another lesson for us, investing. Okay, I think, you, I think we gave up all the time. I'm sorry.